welcome to Dev Policy Talks, coming to you from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. Australian foreign aid has changed considerably in the last 20 years, from an increased focus and commitment to aid in the 2000s to cuts to the aid budget in recent years. In this webinar recorded in February 2021, Dr Terence Wood, a research fellow at the Development Policy Centre, discusses the findings of a recent report that looks at the changing nature of Australian government aid through the lens of aid flows. The data allow direct comparisons between Australia and other OECD Development Assistance Committee donors, comparisons which, as Dr Wood explains, help highlight where Australian aid conforms with international norms of good giving, where it lags behind the global community and where it is a global leader. The webinar is chaired by Ashley Betteridge, Manager of the Development Policy Centre. All right, well, we've just hit midday, so I think we'll make a start. Um, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's webinar on Australian aid flows. Uh, I'm Ashley Betteridge. I'm the Manager of the Development Policy Centre here at ANU, and I'll be chairing our sessions today. I'd like to start by respecting respectfully acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are based here at the Australian National University, the Ngunnawal people, and to also acknowledge all First Nations people wherever you are tuning in from today. Uh, today we'll be hearing from Dr Terence Wood on a recently published report on the changing nature of Australian government aid. Terence will be making comparisons with other donors and highlighting where Australia may be falling behind the global community on aid and also where it's a leader. Terence is joining us today from Wellington, but before I hand over to him, I do just want to flag that this is part of our regular series of webinars on a wider range of development topics that we host at the centre. So do keep an eye out for that on our website, newsletter and social. So uh, without any further ado, it's now my pleasure to hand over to Dr. Terence Wood to speak to us about the latest report. Thanks, Terence. Thank you, Ashley. So I'm Terence Wood, or at least the largely uh, disembodied voice of Terence Wood. And what I'm going to do today is uh, speak to you about some salient features of and trends in Australian aid flows. Uh, and the talk that I'm going to give today is, for the most part, based on a dev policy discussion paper that was released earlier this year and which you can access uh, from the link, uh, which is on the slide here and you can also download the slides after this presentation from the same page where you registered so you can access all the links that I'm going to speak to. And the discussion paper itself goes into a lot more detail about data sources, data methods, and it even provides you with access to an online data set that we created. So if you really want to get into the weeds on this sort of stuff, I definitely encourage you to have a look at the discussion paper. I'd like to offer a few words of thanks um, and acknowledgement to some people who were crucial in the development of this report. First up, I'd like to uh, acknowledge uh, Matthew Dornan and Sachini Muller, who were co-authors of the report. I'm very grateful for their insights, ideas and work uh, and their input into the discussion paper. I'd also like to thank the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Foundation whose support made uh, this research on Australian aid possible. Uh, and whose funding also assists the, the Development Policy Centre. Uh, and I'd like to acknowledge the Australian Government Aid Programme. They did not fund this research. However, they did, by being a relatively transparent aid agency, make this research more easy than it would have otherwise been. 
transparency isn't a given in the world of aid. So I'm grateful to the Australian Government Aid Program for the data sets that they do put online. Of course, uh, having just acknowledged um, other people and other organisations, I would like to uh, state up front that I'm solely responsible for this talk today. And this talk and indeed the discussion paper starts with a couple of nagging questions. They're very simple questions, but if, like me, you're interested in aid and aid policy, they're the sort of questions that are always in the back of your mind. And the first of these questions is simply, how much aid are we giving? And by we, even though I live here in New Zealand, I'm talking about Australia right now, how much aid is Australia giving? Is Australia a generous aid donor in the scheme of things? And also, is Australia giving its aid well? And unfortunately, these aren't easy questions to answer. Uh, and they're not easy questions to answer for a simple reason. And, and that is that aid, unlike domestic social spending, is given overseas. That means aid spending is a lot less visible and it's a lot harder to get a sense of the impacts of the money that Australia spends overseas. That makes aid a tricky area to study, but fortunately, norms within the OECD have led to reasonable data availability, um, and which provides some information on aid flows um, and to an extent on aid projects. And that enables uh, one to get a sense of just how much aid OECD donor countries give, where they give it, what they spend their aid on, and some aspects of aid quality. And in addition to OECD reporting, as I said before, the Australian Aid Programme puts some quite useful data up on its website too. And so that means that it's possible to get a good sense of some aspects of Australian aid. Um, aid flow data most certainly cannot tell us about everything that matters when it comes to aid and aid giving, um, but they can give us some insights into, into useful aspects of aid giving. And that's what I'm going to speak about today. In my final slide, though, I am going to come back to some of the gaps um, and some of the emissions and what you can look at at aid flow data and, and uh, remind you of other ways that the Development Policy Centre has tried to speak to these gaps. One other point I should make right from the get-go is that when one makes use of uh, aid data and studying aid, you have to deal with the fact that aid flow information is only ever released uh, several years after aid money has actually been spent. And the consequence of this is that I can uh, speak throughout this talk, with the exception of just one slide, to Australian aid as it was in the period just prior to coronavirus. So I can't tell you anything today really about the impact of coronavirus on Australian aid. I can touch on it very briefly in one slide, but beyond that, I have to limit my conversations to just limit my discussion to describing Australian aid as it was on the on the eve of coronavirus's arrival, uh, on the eve of the arrival of the pandemic, we should say. Okay, so with that disclosure out of the way, well, what did we find? Let's start by talking about aid generosity. And when I talk about aid generosity, I mean any donor, in this case, Australia's total government aid flow uh, as a share of gross national income. So this is a standard international measure of generosity. 
Um, and what you can see on this slide is a chart that many of you will be familiar with from uh, Deaf Policy's aid tracker. Uh, and it's a chart that tells us a pretty sad story. What you can see is that since the late 1960s, as an aid donor, Australia has slowly but surely, with occasional interruptions, become less generous over time. So Australian aid as a share of gross national income has trended very clearly downwards over this period. That's a depressing point to start the talk on. And one thing that I have to confess is that before I started this work, I thought that this chart probably reflected a sad international human universal. Man inflicts cruelty upon man and aid generosity trends down over time in OECD countries. However, when I started having a look at other countries, what I discovered uh, was really quite a surprise to me. And what I discovered, you can see in this chart here on this slide, and this is a chart that compares each individual OECD donor for which uh, there are data, it compares their generosity in the early 1970s with their generosity in the last years of the last decade. Uh, countries uh, who have positive scores are countries who have become more generous over time. Countries who have negative scores in this chart are countries who have become less generous over time. And what we can see is that Australia is part of a very small group of countries that have become less generous aid donors over time. Indeed, worse than that, Australia is right at the bottom of the league table. So when it comes to aid generosity, whilst once upon a time, Australia was actually quite a generous aid donor, this is clearly no longer the case. Uh, and Australia has become a much less generous aid donor over a period of time where most of the nations of the OECD have become more generous aid donors. Aid quantity or aid generosity isn't everything, of course. And at this point, I'm going to change tack just a little, and I'm going to look at what Australia spends its aid on. Uh, and I'm going to start by looking at, um, I'm going to use a term of aid jargon here, sectoral spending. When we talk about sectors in the aid world, we basically mean areas that we devote aid spending to. And here in this chart, I've got three subcharts: one for governance, uh, for the governance sector, one for the economic development sector, and one for the human development sector. Um, human development is my term for combined, uh, for combined spending on health and education. And these three sectors are included here because they're the three largest sectors, the three largest areas that Australia devotes its aid to. And I'm not showing you this chart because I want to argue that any particular sector is better or worse than any other. Rather, the chart is just a, a useful information about how the priorities of the aid program have changed over time and how things, uh, some things at the same time remain remarkably constant. Also, on this chart, the vertical black lines uh, represent changes, uh, represent elections where there was a change in government. So uh, at 2008, 2008, 2008, of course, the uh, coalition government was replaced by the Labor government. And in 2013, the Labor government was replaced again by the coalition. 
And when we look at these charts, let's start with governance, we can see uh, here governance, uh, uh, which was once upon a time a central focus of the Australian aid program, um, slowly but steadily became uh, a less central focus, first in the Howard years and then definitely across the Rudd years. And even though the coalition was re-elected in 2013, governance did not resume its place of prominence as the key sector that Australia spent its aid on. By the same token, while government governed the fortune of the governance fortunes of the governance sector may not have reversed with the recent change of government, you can also see that spending on governance never really drops below 20%. So at the lowest point in this chart, at least 20% of Australian aid spending was still devoted to trying to improve the quality of governance in developing countries. And I think there's a pretty clear reason for this. And this reason is simply that no matter what else you might be interested in, human development, economic development, it turns out that if you're trying to spend large amounts of aid money in poorly governed countries, it becomes very hard to achieve anything without at least paying some attention to the quality of governance of these countries. Uh, and so if I were to hazard a prediction, I would say that uh, regardless of changes in governments here in Australia in the future, we will see that governance is always a fairly significant sector and fairly significant focus of Australian aid spending. The next chart is human development. And what you can see here is that human development wasn't really a major interest for the Howard government. However, in the Rudd-Gillard years, the years of the Labor government from 2008 to 2013, the focus on human development really incre increased quite rapidly. Uh, for the aid program. Although, bang, with the election of the coalition again in 2013, you can see the focus on human development dropping once again quite rapidly. What you can also see here though, right at the very end of this chart, is an increase in spending on human development uh, right in the years 2017 and 2018. And this increase all stems from an increase in uh, spending on health. Um, this was an increase that arrived pre-coronavirus. I'm not quite sure why the Australian Government Aid Program decided to increase health spending in the years prior to the arrival of coronavirus, but you'd have to say that their decision looks remarkably prescient at this current point in time. Then finally down the bottom here, we have economic development. Intriguingly, Economic development really wasn't much of a focus for the aid program under the Howard government. So that's probably at odds with what you normally expect from conservative governments. Uh, and then under Labor in the years from 2008 to 2013, economic development remained uh, a sector that didn't, achieve, uh, didn't uh, have that much attention devoted to it. However, as you can see here, with the re-election of the coalition, all of a sudden the fortunes of economic development uh, uh, changed quite clearly and now considerably more aid has been spent on economic development, uh, advancing economic development. So some of you will have looked at those slides and said, well, hang on a moment, Terence. Aren't there some other things that are important that are missing from your charts here? Things like uh, aid spending associated with trying to address the issue of climate change or aid spending associated with gender and empowering women. And it's sure, true that I didn't cover those when I plotted these charts of sectoral spending, 
And I didn't because the OECD, whose data that I rely on, uh, that I'm relying on in these charts, uh, doesn't think of things such as climate change and uh, gender as sectors, rather they are considered by the OECD as cross-cutting issues. So it is possible using OECD data to find um, how much uh, money Australia spends to address issues such as climate change. However, you have to look somewhere else in the data set uh, and you have to look uh, in, in, at a variable called money spent on cross-cutting issues. And this is what I've done here. And what I've done in particular is I've looked at one aspect of aid spending associated with climate change. When a country devotes aid to issues associated with climate change, it can devote its aid to one of two things. It can devote its aid um, to helping countries mitigate, uh, it can devote its aid to climate change mitigation. When it's spending aid on issues of climate change mitigation, what it's doing is giving money to developing countries to help them reduce their net greenhouse gas emissions. The other thing that aid can be used from uh, used for associated with climate change is climate change adaptation, which means aid money that is given to help developing countries adapt to the effects of climate change. Now, I think that climate change mitigation is a crucial issue. Indeed, it's probably the most important development issue of our time. However, I also think that climate change mitigation is a an issue that has to be addressed first and foremost by wealthy countries and also wealthier, larger developing countries. When you think about the main recipients of Australian aid, on the other hand, we're talking predominantly about fairly poor countries or countries in the Pacific. And for these countries, I think that the most important aid-related issue is not mitigation, but actually helping these countries adapt to the effects of climate change. And so this is what I've put on this chart. It's the share of each OECD donor's um, aid spend averaged across the years 2016 to 2018 that is devoted to helping countries adapt to the effects of climate change. And when you look here, you can see Australia, only about 1% of Australian aid spending is devoted to helping countries adapt to the effect of climate change. And as you can see, that puts uh, Australia down towards the bottom of the OECD lead table. As far as OECD aid donors go, Australia seems to devote uh, a remarkably small slice of its aid to helping countries adapt to the effects of climate change. Um, some of you, of course, might be thinking, yeah, well, Terence, this is aid globally. This is all the aid that Australia gives to every part of the world. Um, what about the Pacific? Surely in the Pacific, things are kind of different. It turns out, though, as you can see in this chart, things really aren't that different when it comes to Australian aid uh, for climate change adaptation when we look just at the Pacific on its own. So this chart is focused here solely at the, on the uh, aid given to the Pacific region. Uh, it's a time series chart. You can see that once upon a time, a larger share of aid given to the Pacific region was focused on helping countries adapt to climate change, although it was never a huge share of Australian aid. But you can see that in recent years, the share has become uh, very small, so that at this point in time, once again, it is only about 1%. 
So only about 1% of Australian aid to the Pacific is spent for the express purposes of helping countries adapt to the effects of climate change. And to me, at least, when you consider that the bulk of Australian aid goes to the Pacific region, when you consider that Australia is by far and away the largest aid donor in the Pacific region, and that when you consider the fact that even if uh, the, the wealthier countries on this planet finally do something dramatic and start reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, some degree of climate change is going to be experienced and experienced quite significantly by the countries of the Pacific. This looks to me like a real issue, a real emission. The most important donor in the region seems to be doing very, very little to help the countries of the region adapt to the effects of climate change. So that's a pretty concerning fact. Let's now look in a slightly different direction and let, let me now tell you a somewhat more positive story. And this is a story about the extent to which Australia focuses its aid on uh, gender and empowering women. And what I've got here is a chart showing data from 2018. Um, if you go into the report, you'll also see a time series chart. And if you look at that time series chart, you'll see that once upon a time, Australia didn't devote a particularly large share of its aid to gender and to women's empowerment. However, in the years that Julie Bishop was foreign minister, the extent to which the Australian government aid program focused on uh, gender and uh, on devoting aid to empowering women really in increased quite dramatically. So that by the time we get to 2018, we see the state of affairs that you can see on the chart in this slide, which is that Australia spends 17% of its aid, uh, devotes 17% of its aid uh, to the cause of gender and empowering women, uh, and that makes it one of the best donors on earth in this area. So whereas the picture when it comes to climate change adaptation is pretty discouraging, when we look at the picture associated with aid and Australia's aid focus on women's empowerment, we see something that is much more encouraging, something suggestive uh, of a better approach to aid spending. Let's now move away from what Australia focuses its aid on to aspects of aid quality. Now, there are important aspects of aid quality that we cannot study with aid flow data, but we can, however, study some useful areas. One of these is the extent to which donors fragment their aid across different recipients. Generally, it's thought that giving, too many, uh, uh, giving aid to too many countries is not good practice. Doing this is something that increases uh, the overheads burden that a donor feels. Uh, it also reduces the ability of an aid donor to specialise on a, a, any particular country and to gain relevant expertise in any particular country. And it also contributes potentially to duplication at the recipient end as different donors uh, duplicate the same sorts of aid projects in the same countries, and it, it contributes to higher aid management burdens amongst aid recipients. And one way of measuring aid fragmentation is simply to count the number of countries that a donor gives aid to. Uh, when you do this, more countries means more fragmentation. 
And this is what I've done on this chart here. Um, countries with high bars over here are countries that are fragmenting their aid a lot in the sense that they're giving aid to a lot of different recipient countries. These data come from 2018. Um, and what you can see here is pretty bad uh, for Australia, really. There are only 144 countries on earth that are eligible aid recipients. And of these 144, in 2018, Australia managed to give aid to 129 of them. Uh, and as you can see on the chart, only a few other donors managed to give aid to more recipient countries than Australia. So on this particular measure of aid fragmentation, Australia really doesn't come out looking particularly good. That's not the end of the story, though, because simply counting the number of countries a donor gives aid to is not an ideal means of measuring aid fragmentation. It assumes that a donor, a donor devotes an equal amount of money and focus to every recipient it gives aid to. In rea reality, however, donors may give a lot more aid to some countries and a lot less aid to other countries. And this indeed is how Australia gives its aid. It gives the vast majority of its aid to a very small group of countries in Melanesia and in parts of Southeast Asia. And though it gives other, it does give aid to a lot of other countries, those other countries tend to receive pocket change. So almost all of the aid that Australia spends is focused on a pretty small group of countries. And when you take that into account and use some sort of more sophisticated fragmentation measure, which uh, incorporates the extent to which different countries receive different amount of, amounts of aid, what you see here in this chart is Australia actually performing quite well. Uh, this chart is slightly confusing. Sorry, in the previous chart, a high score was a bad score. In this chart, a high score is a good score. But what it's showing is that Australia is one of a fairly small group of countries that actually does not fragment its aid too much, uh, at least doesn't fragment its aid too much when you start looking at fragmentation using a fragmentation index, uh, a measure that takes into account the amount of money that donors give to individual recipients. So here we see Australia doing a good job. It's following best practice, really in uh, uh, how aid should be dispersed uh, across the recipient countries that a, a donor gives aid to. Far better uh, to focus the bulk of your aid on just a few countries than to spread it out equally amongst all the countries that you give aid to. Um, the fact that Australia uh, gives aid to so many countries while focusing most of its aid on so few countries does beg the question, why does Australia give pocket change so many different countries all around the world when it seems to be so capable in focusing the vast bulk of its aid efforts on a small number of countries. That, I guess, is a question that really uh, needs further research. For now, though, before we start thinking about any further research, let's look at another aspect of aid quality that can be measured with aid flow data, and this is aid volatility. And by volatility, I mean the extent to which a donor's aid to individual recipient countries goes up and down in the short term, goes up and down year on year. Now, volatile aid is a bad thing because it's not easy for a recipient country to manage. 
So you imagine that you're a country, say Samoa, if your aid flows from Australia uh, high one, in one year and much lower in the next year, and they go back up again this following year, that's actually pretty hard for the recipient government to manage. It's far better, on the other hand, if a donor tends to give you the same amount of money year on year, or uh, it gives you uh, aid which is perhaps predictably slowly increasing over time or predictably slowly decreasing over time. And aid volatility, aid volatility is something that we went to great lengths to measure. The end product is in the chart on this slide. Um, there's a whole appendix in the report that discover, discusses just exactly how we went about measuring aid quality. The good news is that I uh, have decided not to recite that appendix to you now today. All you need to know is that on this chart, high, countries with higher bars give more volatile aid. That is worse aid. And countries with lower bars give aid that is less volatile, more predictable, and generally easier for recipients to manage. And this chart looks at the aid that donors give to their largest 20 recipients. So it focuses on the main recipients of any particular donor's aid. Um, and in particular, the scores you see in this chart are the volatility of aid to the median recipient amongst the largest 20 recipients. And when we did this, what we found was that in the scheme of things, compared to other OECD donors at least, Australian aid really wasn't that volatile. At least Australian aid to individual large recipient countries was not that volatile. That's a good thing. It's also a pretty surprising thing. When you look at the heading here, you can see that we calculated volatility across the years 2006 to 2018. And any of you who can recollect recent Australian aid history will know that um, overall, Australian aid volumes were actually very volatile over this period. So they increased pretty rapidly from 2006 onwards up until 2013, 14, and then uh, Australian aid flows or overall Australian aid volumes collapsed to a much lower level again. So what this chart is telling us really is that over a period of time where the overall amount of aid that Australia gave was actually really quite volatile, the aid program actually did a pretty good job in ensuring that most of the large recipients of Australian aid did not see this overall volatility translate into massive swings in the amount of aid that they received. And that's pretty good practice, and I'd say that's really quite an achievement on the aid program's behalf during a fairly volatile period for Australian aid. And so on that piece of good news, I'm going to try and bring this talk to some form of conclusion. And I'm going to conclude by asking the question, well, Terence, we've had a lot of charts, but what does all of this really mean? And here's what I think it means. Uh, here are some simple takeaway concluding points for you. Point one, Australian, uh, Australia wasn't always a tight-fisted donor but its generosity has fallen, uh, and it's fallen at a time when other donors have become more generous. Uh, the current government has uh, started to slightly re uh, reverse the trend of falling generosity at present, but 
uh, if Australia is to be anything other than a global laggard when it comes to aid generosity, uh, future improvements will be need to be more substantial than those that we have seen in uh, the last financial year. Second takeaway point, different governments clearly bring different priorities uh, to aid spending. At times, even individual politicians drive the, the focus of the Australian aid program. Uh, and the sort of uh, classic case of this has been Julie Bishop, the former foreign minister, Julie Bishop, and her emphasis on gender. And that really, I think, alongside support in the aid program, led to quite a significant turnaround in this aspect of aid giving. Uh, Third point, I, I can't really think of a way of uh, spinning this to make it sound intellectual or anything, but Australia's focus on climate change adaptation is shocking. Uh, it's something that really needs to be addressed at, in coming years, particularly when you consider that most Australian aid goes to the Pacific. Um, on the other hand, uh, if we want something a bit more positive, the fact that Australia does focus its aid on a fairly small number of countries means that even though Australia gives aid willy-nilly to a large number of countries around the world, it, overall its aid fragmentation is actually quite low and it's doing quite a good job in this area. And then finally, and this is not something that I would have expected when I started uh, out on this uh, research journey, um, but the Australian aid program has done a good job in managing aid volatility uh, and insulating it's important, most of its important recipients from wild swings in aid volume, um, and it's done this in very volatile times. So that's a, a non-trivial achievement on the aid program's behalf. Well, at this point, the skeptic in the audience, particularly the sort of person who hates numbers, might be saying, well, Terence, is this all you've got to say about Australian aid? Um, and it certainly is for me today. But remember, as I said at the beginning of this talk, you can only study some aspects of aid using aid flow data. And here, in the case of deaf policy, we're very, very aware of that fact. And ourselves and our, our fellow travellers have been trying over the years using a wide range of methods to try and build a holistic picture of the state of the Australian government aid programme. And you can see some of the various studies that we've conducted, some of the various resources that we've produced in this slide behind me. As I said, you will have access to the slides. You can click on the hyperlinks for each of these pieces of research and you can go and read the individual work behind them. And I'd like to think that slowly but surely, uh, one piece of the jigsaw puzzle at a time, we are starting to build a pretty comprehensive understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of the Australian Government Aid Program. Uh, that's where I'm going to stop. I'm going to hand it back to you, Ashley, because you are more technologically competent than me, and uh, we'll work together to try and answer the questions. Thanks and, so and much thank for that, Terence. Thanks for the presentation. Um, I'm, I'm sure that other people, uh, as I did when I first saw the report, were um, you know really interested in some of the findings that came out. I remember being quite shocked when I saw that chart comparing um, aid in the 1970s to now, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty used to sad aid charts because I update the Australian aid tracker. <laughs> um, so we do have a couple of questions that have come in um, via the text box. Um, 
but do feel free to put in some more for us and also to raise your hand if you'd like to ask your question um, with your voice. Um, we've got a couple here, one um, from Amanda Watson about how Australia compares to New Zealand, a classic um, rivalry question. And we also have another question here from Deborah Judge about um, whether the staffing profile at DFAT might have also influenced gender funding. So do you want to have a go at those, Terence? Um, sure thing. So with respect to Amanda's question, for a long time, Australia and New Zealand tended both to be fairly frugal, uh, fairly stingy aid donors. Australia let the head of New Zealand in the Rudd years. However, New Zealand has actually um, become a, a much more generous donor than Australia in recent years, although we're still not uh, at Nordic levels or anything like that. But for the time being, we are a somewhat uh, more generous aid donor than Australia. The second question from Deborah Judge is, do changes in gender empowerment reflect not only the gender of the minister, but also the presence of larger proportions of women in DFAT? Um, so, Deborah, I don't have an answer to that question for you, although I think um, it would make a really good uh, research question if you're thinking of doing a PhD. The one thing I can say with some confidence is that while I emphasise Julie Bishop's importance, uh, there were certainly people within the aid program who were pushing very hard to have the aid program um, take a, a, a better, uh, play a better role when it came to women's empowerment. And so those people deserve credit too, certainly. Uh, Amanda Watson has said, uh, how does, uh, so we have a question again from Amanda Watson. Amanda, you're coming close to reaching your quota here. Um, how does the funding, how does funding to multilateral organisations fit into this? Is it possible that it contributes to 129 countries in the chart? This is one of the best um, questions you can possibly ask because it's one that I was looking at this morning. Uh, and the simple answer is no. To my surprise, if you exclude, exclude countries that receive aid either only via multilateral, Australian aid only via multilateral organisations or only via Australian civil society organisations from your calculations. The numbers change a little bit, but we're only talking about two or three uh, countries there. So even if we just looked at pure bilateral aid uh, and took multilaterals out of the picture and took NGOs out of the picture, we would still find Australia giving aid to a lot of countries. And uh, now we have a question from Stephen Howes. How do you refer reconcile your finding regarding little climate change funding with the $500 million uh, climate change specific package announced by Australia in 2019? Um, that is a very good question. Um, and you will know more about this package than I do, Stephen. But obviously, if it is a proposed package for the future, then it won't have been reflected in existing aid data, so that's possibly something that's happened. Also, it would be um, really worthwhile unpacking the numbers included in that package, um, not necessarily pointing a finger at Australia here, but I've noticed that countries tend to be very creative in their accounting when it comes to putting high-level figures to uh, uh, quantify the efforts they're making to trying to tackle climate change uh, one way or another. Um, and one of the beauties of the OECD data is that they don't enable too much creative accounting, at least when you look at the right measures. 
So it would be good to see how that headline figure in that package actually translates into spending uh, when the data finally make it via uh, to us via the OECD. I think that would be the uh, most important point in time to try and answer that question. Um, um, one from Miranda Booth um, that asked, does this data suggest that the Australian government believes it has a greater interest in responding to the consequences of climate change, for example, by providing humanitarian assistance and disaster relief after climate-driven events, rather than bolstering countries' um, capability to adapt? Do you have a thought on that? Um, what well, I'd just like to think that if the Australian government had any foresight, it would be uh, shifting the ambulance to the top of the cliff. I don't know what it believes. Unfortunately, when I call ministers, they don't return my calls. Um, but my advice, at least, would be that it would be good to place the ambulance at the top of the cliff on this one. Okay. Um, we've also got one from Pete Russell here. Um, in terms of the number of countries, does the data include the direct aid programs that's administered through embassies, typically, from my understanding? Um, if not, could, um, how would that perhaps change results? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and so that's something that I'm looking at right now, believe it or not, although um, unfortunately the aid data available to me uh, are going to make it hard to answer the specific question you have asked um, in a tangible, uh, you know, I, I guess, exactly. One thing I will say, though, is um, that the vast number of aid countries that Australia gives aid to is a relatively recent event. It's something that really... Uh, that the number of aid recipient countries increased pretty significantly in the Rudd years. Previously, Australia wasn't guilty of giving aid to quite uh, nearly as many countries. I think it gave aid to about 90 or something at the beginning of the Rudd years. Uh, so, you know, 40 countries less than it's doing now. Um, so, yeah, it seems to me that whatever the source of the change was and the reason why it hasn't been reversed, uh, it ought to be something that could be changed again in the future. Great. Uh, We've got a monkey from Ryan um, on aid effectiveness. It, so I would be interested to hear your thoughts on how you feel the time series of aid effectiveness broadly defined uh, has evolved over the same time. I ask this in light of your work on the challenges with Pacific aid and what you think we do and don't know about the effectiveness in current aid spending programs. Ryan. Um, and I mean, the point here is the only thing you can do with aid quantity and aid flow data is if you're interested in aid effectiveness, that is how much aid actually affects people in uh, recipient countries, is you, you can make some assumptions and you can develop some proxies. That's not as good as having really good data from evaluations. Um, in particular, I guess both Ryan and I would be fans of impact evaluations, but there are also other good forms of evaluations that could give us a better sense of effectiveness. And really, um, rather than uh, making any claims about what data may or may not be able to tell us about overall Australian aid effectiveness, I would just um, probably like to say that the more um, evaluations that are conducted, the better they are and the more publicly available the results are made the better we all get a sense of how effective Australian aid really is. Okay, then we've got a question from Alana Moore. Um, with regards to sectoral spending data telling us about the government's priorities, how much of the differences over time accounted for by responses to individual countries' situations? Um, for example, DFAT may plan to prioritise governance spending 
but its budget then gets eaten up responding to a human development issue in a, in a particular country? And that's a really good question, Alana. Um, I would tend to say that when we're talking about development spending as opposed to uh, responses to humanitarian emergencies and outside of a, a global pandemic, generally uh, needs don't change that dramatically in the short term. The one thing that can uh, shift dramatically in the short term is, of course, uh, needs in response to humanitarian emergencies. Um, and that could have an impact, although, uh, and it certainly would, uh, you know, think about the Indian Ocean tsunami, for example. Um, but I don't think that uh, fluctuations in the sort of in humanitarian emergency need over time is the source of any of the trends that we've seen in the chart that I've presented today. Although you can go and double check because there is a full chart with humanitarian emergency spending included in the report. But I, I just wanted to ask you, Terence, on your chart around the human development and that uptick in 2018, I wondered whether that might be around the time that the um, Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security was established. I was wondering whether that maybe could be one of the factors that might have accounted for that, but that, that's just a guess on my part. It might not be right, though. <laughs> yeah, we could go in and uh, dig into the project descriptions and the CRS data and perhaps get a better sense. That would take time, but... Um... Um, we've got another question coming from Ben Day um, on Australian aid and his, its history and what the main surprise was for you in compiling this report. Um, so, yeah, another good question. Thank you, Ben. I think the main surprise for me was the volatility one. I had simply assumed that you couldn't have such volatility in high level and overall aid flows and not see that translate to pretty shocking levels of aid volatility as experienced by individual recipients. But the aid program did a pretty good job of managing that. Um, and then I'm also slightly surprised that Australia gives aid to so many recipients that I, yeah, I hadn't, I mean, I, I will know that Australia focuses on Southeast Asia and Melanesia, so that was no surprise, but to find that it sprinkles its pocket change all around the world in the gleeful way that it does, uh, that was a bit more uh, of a surprise to me. But I'll just take this moment as well just to let people know that the full report is available on our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Um, and Terence also wrote a summary blog about the report, which went up last month, I think, in January on, on devpolicy.org. So um, if you do want to revisit some of the, the findings or the charts, because um, some of them definitely um, are food for thought, um, you can have a look at the full report or the blog on, on the web. Is there anything else you wanted to, to add, Terence, or comment on in regard to the report? Uh, no, that's fine. Thank you very, everyone. Thank you very much, Ashley, uh, for um, hosting this, and thank you, Ari, for facilitating it too. And uh, thank you, everyone, for attending. And um, of course, if you do think of any questions at some later point in time, you can email me. I'm happy to engage that way. Thank you. Yeah. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can support us at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Thanks for listening.